Hey there, friends. My name is Kyle Devlin, and this is Having a Blast. Having a Blast is a pop punk, punk rock, and emo podcast where we're going to be discussing all things punk rock ethos and personal development and the parallels within. We'll also be doing some deep dives on important albums and bands. I'm going to be talking to band members, producers, and a bunch of my friends. And I want to know what makes these people tick. How has being self-motivated moved them in the direction of their goals? We're going to have a lot of fun finding out. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kyle Devlin. This is Having a Blast. Today, I am extremely excited to be speaking with Mr. Ted Bond, singer of the melodic punk rock band Craig's Brother. I have been a fan of Craig's Brother for over 20 years now, which is insane to say. I discovered them on the Tooth & Nail compilation, as I'm sure a lot of you did, songs from the Penalty Box. Craig's Brother has a really fascinating career arc, and we discuss all of it. We talk about everything. Ted opens up about what it's like to be ostracized by not only your label, but also by members of the Christian music scene in general. We talk about the history of the band, we discuss what it was like to make a new full length at this stage in their career, and the two songs that they have released so far, three really because they released the opener as well, they're all fantastic. They have four songs as well that they released earlier in the year as an EP. I learned a ton in this talk. I had so many things I wanted to ask Ted and he was gracious enough in giving me his time and giving me really thoughtful answers. We talk about Ryan Key from Yellow Card joining the band and the cross connection between the two bands. We talk about Lost at Sea. We talk about getting records shelved and sent back from stores because of a song that discussed masturbation. We talk about it all. I hope you find this conversation as illuminating as I did. So without any further delay on my part, please enjoy this multifaceted chat with Ted Bond of Craig's Brother. Good, man. Dude, thank you so much for agreeing to do this with me today. I just got back from work and I commute a little bit, so it was like getting set up. I forgot that I had taken my computer to where we recorded on Wednesday and I came down to my office. This is my office downstairs and I know I'm missing something. Oh yeah, I have a computer upstairs in my bag, so let's go grab that. that sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's part of this, right? Very cool. So you're in California, correct? Yes. Awesome, man. And are you... Just out of curiosity, are you living in Santa Cruz? I know you're from Santa Cruz. I live in Boulder Creek, which is about a half hour from Santa Cruz. It's up in the mountains. Okay, cool. And you're not too far from the Bay Area, San Francisco area. Yeah, it's this is all, yeah, Santa Cruz, Boulder Creek, all part of the Bay Area. Okay, cool. We used to play there a lot. Just for context, I'm in a band. Okay. And we used to play California a lot, but it's been a while since I've been to California and spent a lot of time in the Bay Area and Northern California in general. The Bay Area has gotten really weird. That's what I've heard. Yeah. At least in terms of punk rock. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of punk rock and I know it's really expensive to live there. And it was expensive 20 years ago, so I can only imagine what it's like now. And I've been to Southern California a couple of times just visiting and things, and it's always interesting to go back now 
with a different lens and the fact that I'm an adult and stuff. And back then I was a kid in many ways, but how's the weather there today? Pretty hot. Well, I don't know. I guess that's all relative. It's 98 degrees at my house. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's it's pretty warm. Yeah. It's over a hundred most places. I'm like right under a bunch of redwoods and by the river. So it's a little bit cooler here, but. Okay. You know what? I I feel like I should clarify Craig's brother. We say we're from Santa Cruz because that's the closest big city. Mm -hmm. Actually like, I think we did our longest, most consistent practicing in Boulder Creek. So Okay. So where you're at. Yeah, yeah. So you spent a lot of time there. Very cool. It's like that here in the Midwest too. I think oftentimes you'll have people that they live near Kansas City, but Kansas City, it would take an hour to drive across the entirety of it technically. And I think it's the same with St. Louis. There's a lot of people who live outside of St. Louis or maybe even closer to Columbia, but they might say they're from St. Louis or something. Dude, we always had great shows in Kansas City. Really? Back That's in cool. the day, yeah. Do you remember where you guys played? Did you guys play the New Earth? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very cool. It was probably late 90s, I would imagine, after Homecoming came yeah, out. Yeah, late 90s, 2000, 2001, a little bit, yeah. Okay. My band, we started playing the New Earth pretty regularly around the 2000 mark. I was 16. That's when we started the band. I don't think I've ever seen Craig's brother play live, which is unfortunate because you guys are definitely on my bucket list. That's a shame I had missed that show because I was going to the New Earth pretty frequently around the late 90s, early 2000s. I found a video of us playing Kansas City recently, but I wouldn't show it to you. That's cool, man. It's cool that there was a lot of people here seeing you guys play and enthusiastic. I had a friend of mine, I was just thinking about it on the way home from work, actually. The first time I actually heard Homecoming in its entirety, because I had heard Craig's brother on the songs from the penalty box. I think Dear Dear Charlotte, that was the one that I heard on one. And I loved that song, but I never saw your record. And I probably assumed at some point I'd see you guys play live. But I remember my friend Jason, he showed me Homecoming. And I think it had been out for maybe a year and a half at that point. But it also just happened to be the same day that I discovered Rufio. I listened to that first demo that they put out. Yeah. It's weird how that happens. You have these distinct memories of when you discover bands, but it's time and place. It transports you right back to that time and era. It's pretty interesting that you discovered us and Rupio on the same day. Yeah. Yeah. Because you guys have been a band at that point for a while. And this is probably 2000. And my friend Ryan, he started a record label, a small record label, and he really wanted to sign Rufio. And they had that three song demo out before, perhaps, I suppose, came out. But I just remember those two things. I had heard Homecoming for the first time. And I was like, oh, yes, I love this band. I need this record. And then at the same time, discovered Rufio on the same day. So I may go in chronological order here, but sometimes it's fun to Tarantino and go all over the place. But I, I'm a big fan of Craig's brother, big fan of your band and have been for a really long time. Game time for a very brief shining moment was on the same label as Craig's brother, as well as Hey Mike with Takeover Records. Oh, you guys were on Takeover? Yeah, very briefly. And then we broke up. No way. <laughs> yeah, we were good friends with Yellow Card. And I booked their very first show in Kansas City in Lawrence, which Lawrence is about 45 minutes away. That's where I'm at right now. Was that like 2001 or something? 2000? Yeah, it was end of 2001, early 2002. One for the kids had just come out. And I met those guys and they were coming through with Park. And I happened to book the show. And that's how I got to know those guys. And obviously affiliated with Craig's brother, the fact that Ryan was in the band for a little bit. And I would love to talk about that too, just because the timeline... 
I'd love to know from your perspective. Going back to, we mentioned Santa Cruz being the big city. Did you guys play Santa Cruz a lot when you were younger at the very beginning inception of Craig's brother? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Our first, very first show was in Santa Cruz. It took a little while for us to like actually get a good draw in Santa Cruz. But by 2000, we were drawing about like 500 people in Santa Cruz. Now we hardly draw anybody, but in our own In Santa Cruz? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I would imagine live music, the scene is probably a little different today. There is a live music scene in Santa Cruz, but it's not so punk anymore. Though it is coming back. The last show we played was about a year ago, and a bunch of the young kids, I was totally surprised, knew us and knew our music and were into it. That's great. That's very cool. But most of Santa Cruz is like Grateful Dead cover bands. (laughs) It's like that here in the Midwest, too. You've got a lot of jam bands and stuff. If you really want to be a successful musician, just cover the Grateful Dead. At least if you want to make money. And don't play punk rock. That's true. Yeah. The only money I ever made in music was playing in a cover band. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Did you have any like space jams? We didn't really. We we were one of those cover bands that played with a track oftentimes. It was very like robotic. We didn't have any of those jam band songs, but it was more like, oh, we're playing a bar tonight. So hopefully everybody's drinking a lot and enjoying themselves because then we'll get lots of tips. That's actually the one thing I really don't understand about music from like, the 60s and 70s like pink floyd i love pink floyd except i'm like you have like a seven minute song and you jam for like 70 percent of it. like <laughs> can i get the like abridged version of pink floyd please <laughs> that would be great right the cliff's notes version of pink floyd yeah that'd be good good courses and cut out the jam parts yeah, that would be the pink floyd version for all the people not doing lsd while listening yeah, I think if you're on LSD, it's cool. Yeah, because you got all those interludes and stuff that you're just gently swaying or bobbing oh, your head to. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've heard you say in interviews, in preparation for this, I heard you talking about how you had a bit of a hippie phase when you first started getting into music. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You Which discovered the Beatles. I mean, Santa Cruz is a hippie town. Yeah, I discovered the Beatles and like, I love them. And I was like, I love the Beatles. I must be a hippie. And then I started hanging out with hippies. It's funny. I, at school, I started trying to hang out with the stoners. I was a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. And none of the, the, the stoners wouldn't accept because I was really? just too loud and obnoxious. They're like, we're trying to get me a little crow. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Other kids were like, say no to drugs. I was like, nobody will offer me drugs. <laughs> I'm not cool enough to hang out with the stoners. Exactly. Did you ever get in hacky sack circles? Was that a thing? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Hacky sack circles when I was a freshman in high school. That was what it was all about. Yeah. But I was never good at that either. So. Okay. What year was this? Just out of curiosity. Like 90, 90, 91. Okay, cool. Did you graduate in 94? No, I graduated in 95. 95. Okay. That was a good era. The grunge era was in full force. It was interesting to see... I see it now with culture and fashion and everything making a big loop back to the early 90s, because I think in the grunge era, you had grunge, but you also had this resurgence of 70s culture. And maybe that was more towards the mid 90s, the but generation. Kind of together. There was a little bit of an overlap. Yeah. Like Neil Young. All the grunge greats were like, we're really influenced by Neil Young. That's true. So, And Nirvana was influenced by the Beatles. So it makes sense that it was having its next heyday, you know, just well, like and also, now. What, my big complaint, actually, I feel like we're starting to break out of this, but like 
for a long time, everything's been almost exactly the same. No matter what genre, it's like the same chord progression. It's like a one, five, six, four. Mm-hmm. Every time. The late 80s, it was all about dance music and pretty formulaic what was going on on MTV. Oh, it was either like hair metal bands mm-hmm. or it was like dance music slash kind of hip hop, but more like Paul Abdul stuff. Yeah, synthy. It kind of got to the point where it was like the music was really confined. And then grunge came along and just blew the door open. And I feel like part of the reason that happened was because people were just tired of being confined to either this category or that category. Sure. Uh, which I feel like we're kind of in the same similar position. So I guess we just need the door to be blown open again. Do you think that's a possibility now? I think so, yeah. You I think there's a genre that's waiting to be discovered that could just be defining in terms of the era that it comes out of? Because sometimes I wonder if we could ever realistically have another Nirvana. Does rock music or distorted guitars, does it have something like it's that? Like or is it just going to be something completely... Relic. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Or just... Different genre altogether. The kids that I meet, the young kids are pretty, I don't know, especially I feel like post-pandemic, they're pretty open-minded. And they're way more into the idea of just like getting together and listening to like, or hanging out with a band at a party or something than they were before. Like before, like that was like, they were way too busy. Mm -hmm. They were busy like trying to get into college or something. Yeah, it was mostly trying to get into college. And after the pandemic, they're just like, fuck that, I'm going to hang out. (laughs) So you think it's that connection (laughs) that people miss? Kind of. I think so. Yeah. I mean, these in Santa Cruz, the shows actually it was starting in 2021 that this hardcore scene really blossomed. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of hardcore bands like the, I don't know if you're familiar with the band Drain. Mm-hmm. But they came out of that whole thing, like the pandemic hardcore scene in Santa Cruz. And now they're like touring the world. Or a band like Knocked Loose. You watch those shows and totally. it's going off. People yeah, are enjoying yeah. themselves, being near each other, listening to music and sharing that experience. I don't know. It will be something like that. Maybe it'll be something really angsty and aggressive. I feel pretty encouraged. I wish Craig's brother wasn't spread all over the world these days so we could actually play Santa Cruz. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because Steven, he's in Germany now? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was a little shocked when he told me he was moving to Germany, but then he explained the context and the situation. Since his wife and his child and him had been just struggling, struggling in California. They went to Seattle. And it was kind of even worse because I didn't know anyone there. You know, you need, when you have a little baby, you need a family network. You need, you know, to be able to drop the baby off of grandma and grandpa or whatever. Sure. Yeah. It's mutually beneficial, right? Grandparents get quality time and you get some help and a date night or two, which is crucial. You get that reconnection. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. It makes sense to have that family unit. And I know that's one of the, the big reasons for moving out there and stuff. But going back to the hippie phase or out of the hippie phase, rather. What was the catalyzing nature of getting into punk rock? Honestly, like Nirvana was huge. Like I loved the Beatles and I loved their songs. At that stage in my musical development, which was like right at the beginning, I could not figure it out what they were doing or how to actually like play like them. And when I I got Nirvana, never mind, like right when it came out. And I started learning all those songs and just the power chords. It was a lot easier to learn even though it's completely like unpredictable music by like Western music standards. Yeah. So that kind of like introduced me to punk rock. And then I think the other big experience was I was hanging out with this friend one day, just another one of my dorky friends as a freshman. I was at his house and his brother came, his older brother came and like stuck his head in the drawer. I was like, hey, Derek, how's it going? And he had like, I think half his head was spiked and the other half was like leopard spots. And I was like, whoa, my 15 year old self thought that was really cool. And he left and I was like, who's that? 
He's like, oh, that's my brother. He's in a band. They're called Good Riddance. You want to hear them? And he gave me a copy of their demo. Whoa, okay. Yeah, they were from Santa Cruz, right? Yeah, yeah. That kind of changed my life. That was like, I don't know. After that, it was like, it, I stopped being a hippie. Or I realized I wow. wasn't a hippie. And it was all about <laughs> That's that awesome. was so good. It had a lot of the songs from Forgotten Country, but they were better performed. I don't know about better recorded, but they recorded Forgotten Country in five days. Wow. Isn't a lot of time for that many songs. So they really had to rush it. It wasn't necessarily the very best performances. And then so, I started like good riddance. Like they would they were playing all these parties locally at that point. So like I'd go with Derek to see, you know, to one of his brother's parties and watch them play. And then pretty soon they would like keep. Yeah, I can imagine they got signed at Fat Records. Was yeah. it from that demo that you yeah. heard? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. That's really cool. So Luke, the guitar player for Good Riddance. Yeah, was- Luke was was Derek's brother, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. That's very cool. I love Good Riddance. I grew up on Fat Records. I'm borderline obsessed with that record label. That's really cool. So I would imagine that opened the floodgates hearing Good Riddance. And it was probably cool the fact that they were from your hometown too. Totally. Oh, and I have to mention it was okay. That same day before he gave me the Good Riddance demo, he showed me No Effects Rib. And that like also was kind of like, yeah. So basically I discovered both those bands in the same day and that totally blew my doors open. What I don't think I like really thought about so much at the time, but lately I've been thinking about is that Good Riddance is a very ethical company. Like they have high ethical standards. They're like yeah. vegan, whatnot. And I don't know that everybody else, maybe not, I could be wrong about this, but I don't know that people necessarily associate punk rock with high ethical standards. Mm-hmm. But for me, that was there at the very beginning. It's kind of always been there. Like punk rock is ethically questioning society. Yeah. It really does that whether or not you think of it as high ethical standards. Most bands are questioning culture in some way. Right? Yeah, that's a really great point, actually. And something I wanted to talk to you specifically in terms of Craig's brother, because you listen to a lot of the Craig's brother songs and the themes baked in. I think you guys ask really great questions in your songs. And thank you. You're not always trying to be on the nose with the answer, but punk rock is about questioning, right? Questioning authority, questioning what's going on, questioning the status quo, which is maybe something that pulled us in to punk rock. I think that was something that even subconsciously, I think I was attracted to. I was a teenager when I first heard Propagandi and Pennywise and stuff like that. But I think there was something about their lyrics and their message that hooked me initially it's interesting because i'm 38 years old now and i'll go back and listen to those mid 90s good riddance albums pennywise and propagandi and i'm thinking wow they were really going for it they were trying to tell the truth or they were trying to ask those questions you know there was a lot of baked in ethics and morality associated with it i think that our generation especially the 80s kids but i I think it was still true for the 90s kids Punk rock was in the early 80s. There was this like recession. There were no jobs for young people. There was really nothing to do. And also at the same time, society was just kind of like, you guys are a bunch of punks. Not in the way we talk about it, but like you guys, you know, a bunch of losers get a job. Well, there's no job to get. What are you talking about? So it was, I don't know, all these kids who were basically just abandoned by society. They just started telling it how they saw it. And there was no reason not to. I feel like what the difference is with most young people is there's an incentive to conform. Like mm-hmm. you're going to get a job and have, a, you know, money, a nice car, beautiful wife, all these promises of middle-class life. And that wasn't even being promised. It was just like, oh, fuck you guys. And so it was <laughs> like, well, fuck you back. We're going to play the most obnoxious music we can play. 
and tell you why you're wrong. Yeah. And call it out, call it out for what it is. And you're idealistic when you're young, so you can see it for what it is. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it was totally natural and it felt totally natural to just question culture to be basically radical. Yeah. It isn't really natural. Young people should be fairly like progressive or, you know, forward thinking, but if society's doing its job, we should also, it's training us to be the next, you know, conformists. Society kind of failed with the punk generation and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's happening again? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, history what happened, like in the 21st century is that they got better at, what they did was they kept kids so busy that they had no time to question anything. They just packed their schedules like as full as they possibly could. And most kids are just depressed and stressed out and didn't really know why and didn't even have time to question it. Like at least we had a lot of time. We, that's not all the only thing we had was like time to ride our skateboards and make punk rock songs. Mm-hmm. These kids didn't have any time. But now post pandemic or well, the pandemic really changed all of that. And I think there's probably some of them are kind of slipping back into that. Like, I don't know. Actually, I don't know what's happening quite so well now with the kids post pandemic. But I do know that the pandemic gave them all the time to think that they didn't have before. Yeah. And even adults in some cases, oh. you had the great resignation where people had a moment to come away from their job that maybe wasn't that great. And they thought, hmm, I actually don't really love this service-based job. I'm going to go try to do something else. So then you have all these people quitting these jobs that maybe they're not being supported or... I don't know if you're familiar with Too Bad Eugene. Mm -hmm. Adam was a former guitar player of ours. and Actually, he might be a guitar player of ours again, but that's his band now. He's the singer of that. And they have a song on their new record. I was just listening to it this morning because he gave me a copy of it. It's not out yet, but it totally talks about that. And it's like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to the band. I was too busy to even appreciate what really matters. And he's talking about being stuck with his family. It's really cute because he loves his family so much. I wonder if his teenage kids felt as stoked to be stuck with him as he felt to be stuck with them. But that's a good <laughs> But nevertheless, it's a great song. And he his point is just that. like He's had, given that time to rethink your values. It's like, well, why go back? Why would I want to go back? Yeah. It's a good question to ask. I think it's one of those things where people were forced to wake up a little bit. Not necessarily like, wake up to the truth. It's just yeah. being introspective because wake you're up, being... sheeple. <laughs> exactly. You're being forced to be introspective. We all long to get away from our cell phones for two seconds, subconsciously, I think, because, or we're terrified. Oh, it's like God. one or the other. You're terrified to be alone with your thoughts, or you yearn to be out in nature and get away from it for a second because it allows you to get that space. That's one of the things that the pandemic did for me. It forced me to confront the space and the silence for a second. And I think that's a good thing. And maybe society is still reordering itself or reorienting itself a little bit. Yeah. That's a great idea for a song. Just the idea of getting introspective, being forced to potentially, and then re-examine what it is that you actually care about. And it usually comes down to the relationships in your life and the people around you and purpose and meaning, if you can try to define what that is. And That said, Adam was lucky and I was lucky too, because I have a family, but I feel really sorry for the people who were stuck by themselves. Yeah. In isolation. Yeah. We just had a, we had a baby, a new baby, February 13th, 2020. Wow. Right before the lockdown happened. So like for us, it was just all this time to spend with our new baby and our, our older baby, who's three or four years old, four years old, three years old at the time. My son, though, on the other hand, who was 
17 at the time. It wasn't like we necessarily spent more time with him. He just shut himself in his room. And like most teenagers, it was like pretty much every teenager I know at that point was just under their blankets, like on a computer. <laughs> yeah. Like super depressed. Feeling isolated yeah. and confused by everything happening around them. Oh, for teenagers. Like that's the last thing you want as a teenager. Just be like, oh, just go to your room for a year. Yeah, you're right. It's almost one of those things where you think you want that, but then you actually are confronted with that. And it's scary and isolating and confusing and it's probably not that great. It's crazy to think about what younger generations have gone through already. You know, 17, looking back at the fact that 2001 wasn't that long ago, 9-11 and all the subsequent events that have happened. If you were a young person throughout that historical timeline, it's crazy. But you mentioned jobs earlier, and I was listening to this guy talk a little bit about how the baby boomers had too many kids, and then they had too many kids, and that's one of the reasons we don't. But at the same time, you hear that there's lots of opportunity out there and lots of jobs available, but there's lots of people competing for the same jobs in ways too. So I wonder if the cycle is happening that you mentioned from the 80s to now. Right, like that. Parallels there. Yeah, you got some abandoned kids who are going to gravitate toward punk rock now again (laughs) maybe you never know the new iteration of it so you discovered good riddance you discovered fat records and then i would imagine you wanted to start a band because we all want to start a band when we start learning those power chords yeah accessible yeah i wrote this song called nothing to say i could grab my guitar and play it it's really simple i'm gonna grab my guitar do it let's do it this was like my first punk song wait do i have a picture Dude, out of 99 episodes, this is the first time anybody's ever done this, so this is great. Wait, I may be doing the Nirvana rhythm just because I've got Nirvana in my head, but it was like... I just did that over and over again. (laughs) That's awesome, man. That's killer. I think you guys should re-record that. (laughs) So I had a band called General Handiwork. General Handiwork... I love General Handiwork. I kind of wish we never broke up. We never really did break up. We just kind of moved on. I've had bands like that. Were you guys a punk band? Yeah, we were punk. We were kind of a little more old school. We also like sometimes rap. That's cool. Edgy. Yeah, totally. We were definitely kind of avant-garde. Our bass player would wear a dress sometimes. Stuff like that. I don't know if that's really avant-garde. It's just kind of- punk rock for the time, for sure. Yeah. And I think what happened is, so Andy started Craig's brother and he heard me singing with my band General Handiwork. And he kind of like, was like, hey, why don't you come jam with us? And I don't know, General Handiwork was great. I guess what, why was I so drawn to Craig's brother? I think it was just, it, it was like five guys that were really passionate about songwriting and the amount of work that was going into the song was a little bit more. General Handiwork was kind of silly, like what I just played. Yeah. Pretty simple stuff. But, I mean, some of it was kind of cool. Like, but mostly I was doing most of the songwriting. So it was kind of nice to have some other songwriters that I was working with. Yeah, to bounce song ideas off of and things like that. Yeah, totally. And they were taking it seriously. So I think we all start playing music with our friends and it's a really fun thing. You're just jamming in the garage or your friend's basement or something. But there is something alluring about people who start taking it seriously. And then you think, oh, we're going to play a show. And we're yeah. going to big shows. And then maybe even we're going to go out of town and play shows. You know, I don't even know if that necessarily occurred to me, but doors started opening pretty quickly with Craig Flavin. And our first show was way bigger than anything General Handiwork had done. I can't remember what our second show was, but our third show was opening for NXPX. Oh, wow. 700 people. How many people? 700. Wow. 
which was okay. just kind of like, wow, like, I don't know, like this, the amount of momentum that started happening right off the bat. It's kind of hard to ignore. Okay. So this was before Tooth and Nail when you opened for MXPX? Yeah. Okay. And how did that come to be? Do you remember? I'm sure you guys were fans of them, but were they coming to town? Had they heard of your band or somebody at the venue let you guys play? I don't, I'm trying to remember if we had recorded our... I don't think we'd even recorded our demo yet. It was just kind of like... I think basically this idea of a Christian punk was like a brand new idea. Mm-hmm. And we had gotten that label just because we were Christians and the punk band. There were just a ton of shows ready to happen. And for whatever reason, we got enough attention that, that, that we got on that show. It was so weird. Like, it all happened so fast. and It's hard to say, but yeah. Okay. Definitely. Our very first show was like, working with a guy who's, uh, I'm still friends with him. His name's Philip Von Reddy, but he was like managing bands, producing shows. And it was much more of a serious situation than just you know, some playing a party or whatever. And okay. he, I think, kind of told a bunch of people about us and we're in spread great soon. We're opening for Okay, cool. Our fifth show, we opened for the Super Temple. Oh, nice. <laughs> the Super Temple. Yeah, I remember the Super Temple. people. Like, we were like, what? Like, it was also a, it was us, Five Iron Frenzy, and Super Tones. I love wow. Five Iron Frenzy. I still love Five Iron. Super Tones, I don't know. <laughs> they were big back then i mean they really were. were so big i bet i mean they probably sold a million records maybe that's what's so incredible about that time period you had independent labels selling a noteworthy amount of units i mean i think of a band like no use for a name didn't they sell two million copies of fat yeah. records over their 10 years a band that's insane to me or maybe even more but like the supertones, something about ska i don't know it just fits so well with christian culture at the time like, it's like hey, this is mostly silly and hardly offensive at all. <laughs> I can be like edgy and alternative, but not bad. Yeah. Punk, not quite so much. Yeah. And periodically, you know, there's distorted guitars. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. we digress. That's a pretty cool lineup of shows though. You open for MXPX and then right into a couple shows later, you're opening for Five Iron and the Supertones. When did Tooth and Nail come into the fold? When did you know that you were going to be in front of them or talking to them. Okay. So we first got together. We were like, okay, I guess we're a Christian band. We're Christians. We're in a band. That must mean we're a Christian. Right. But by the time we recorded our second demo or keeping it real, our seven inch, we, we started to question that like insult to injury is probably our most popular song ever is critiquing Christian. It's not Christian propaganda. It's kind of saying like, what's up with this? We kind of were like, well, wait a second. Christian music is mostly just the Jesus music. And here we are criticizing the church more than saying, yay, Jesus. And also the expectations of youth pastors and stuff was that we were going to be basically Christian propaganda. And we didn't, we weren't doing that. We were trying to be a punk and writing punk lyrics, which are questioning the culture or not questioning our own culture, which was Christianity. So we kind of like realized slash decided that we weren't really a Christian band, but that didn't really fit what we were doing. So we sent out, our demo to pretty much all secular labels, Fat Records, Epitaph. I think we sent it to like Lookout, but Adam, sneaky old Adam, who, I don't know, Adam kind of grew up in a much more rigid, or I don't know if I'd say rigid, but he went to a Christian high school, private school his whole life, very Christian. So he really likes Tooth and Nail, and he sent the demo to Tooth and Nail. Was there part of him that maybe wanted to label yourselves as a Christian band or be known as a Christian band, even if you didn't outrightly say 
were a Christian band. Was he okay with the idea of entering the secular market? He wasn't opposed to it. Okay, so we actually had this bass player and guitar player. Brent Capping was our bass player for a moment. He just died this last spring, which is really sad. Was oh, man. I'm sorry to hear that. There was a guy, Dave Cree, and they were all about being in a Christian band. And we decided when we decided we weren't going to be a Christian band anymore, they quit. So we got Scott, who was actually our bass player before Brent, back. And then we got Adam in the band. So Adam was okay with us not being a Christian band. He knew that getting into it. And I don't think he necessarily even thinks of Too Bad Eugene in the Christian way. But Too Bad Eugene definitely talks about God and Jesus more than Craig Fleather does. Mm-hmm. So he's still doing that, which is not a criticism. Too Bad Eugene does it in a very tasteful way. I actually really like it. But he knew that. But at the same time, he really liked Tooth and Nail. He really liked NXPX. He really wanted to be a part of that whole crew. So he sent them the demo or the, basically the whole package. And they liked it responded and i guess when the money was being made it wasn't even money it wasn't like there was that much money but it was just kind of like the distribution the whole deal was too much to say no to for us so we we jumped on board sure it was an opportunity even around that time i completely relate to what you're saying because i myself was in a similar situation i was in game time there was four of us I didn't realize it at the time, but I was the odd man out. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have that frame of reference at all. My parents identified as Christians, but we just didn't grow up going to church. My only knowledge when it came to the Bible was I had a babysitter who would take us to essentially a Bible school where they would teach you the stories of the Bible, the condensed version when I was really, really young. So that was my influence or that was my frame of reference when it came to that stuff. But the other guys in my band had grown up in the church. And we're very familiar with that type of culture. And we went through the same thing where we didn't quite know if we were going to be calling ourselves a Christian band. It never really felt truly authentic to me for obvious reasons. But the tie-in here is we were a band from 2000 to 2004. And even then, it seemed like the prospect of signing to Tooth & Nail would have been a really good one. Because you had a built-in audience. They had the distribution. They were widely known. And there was a lot of great bands on Tooth & Nail. Well, and it made a huge difference. Like you said, you heard us from songs from the penalty box. Yes. Songs from the penalty box is one of the biggest things that ever happened to us. So many people heard us from songs from the penalty box. Yeah. I think Slick Shoes also helped me be comfortable with that decision. I really liked Slick Shoes. We actually met the guys when we were thinking about signing. And I was like, okay, this is real punk rock. Mm -hmm. Not that MXPX wasn't, but I don't know. I wasn't super into MXPX at the time. I really like them now. Really? That's interesting. So in the late 90s, you weren't really into them. You didn't grow up with teenage politics, life in general. I mean, I was very familiar with those records, but that I wasn't that into them. Okay. I think the first record that I really liked was uh, Slowly Going the Way of the Buffalo. Yeah. That record, actually, like, the first time I heard it, I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a great record. It's a classic record. I'm actually I'm very curious. Story, but we were, uh, we were visiting Tooth & Nail like maybe a month before it came out and we stole a box of slowly going the way of the buffalo and then we sold it on tour <laughs> that's amazing We're like we got this early bro 20 bucks yeah, <laughs> nice people thought it was like an mxpx bootleg or something yeah. what is this okay new mxpx cool that's great man it's a good thing recording was so difficult back then because otherwise you would have had another band stealing all those songs and going, look, it's our new record. Check I know, right? Yeah, totally. They would have had it done like in a day. <laughs> yeah. 
That's amazing. Okay, so you did that on tour. And then Homecoming came out the same year, right? 1998? Yeah, yeah. Well, we sent the demo out 1997, and then, yeah, Homecoming was recorded and released 1998. Yeah. Okay, cool. Who'd you guys record with? Did you guys record with Steve? No. No. We Okay, I want to tell stories that I probably shouldn't tell. Maybe. Oh, dude, please do. <laughs> no one we listens to this with Don L. Cameron, who did a lot of work with Bad Religion, and he was mostly just an engineer, but he did, like, all those West Beach records back in the day but the very first time we went to west beach studios in hollywood they sent us down there just to check it out slick shoes was recording so we go in there <laughs> this is appropriate or not <laughs> steve kravak has on the mixing board he's got a porno and he's got a mirror with some lines oh like, my. welcome to rock and roll <laughs> yeah that's a big juxtaposition there it's for awesome. sure do it again do it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. But yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, when I first met Slick Shoes, we played a couple shows with those guys. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, my idea of the tooth and nail world, tooth and nail bands, the Christian music scene, it's not exactly how I had envisioned it. But, you know, me and my friends, we were drinking and smoking pot occasionally. So I wasn't offended by it because I didn't grow up with it. I wasn't like, what are you doing? You're swearing and smoking right now. We went on tour with Slick Shoes and the whole time, both of bands were like sneaking off to drink and smoke weed, but we didn't know that the other band was doing it. <laughs> we only found out later, oh, you guys are doing that too. Yeah. And they just weren't open about it, right? Yeah, it was yeah, a big no-no to say those things or to let that get out into the public persona. Totally. Yeah. You had to keep it. You had to keep it on the down low. We could have been smoking bowls. The whole time. Could have been chief in with ryan yeah who was like 16 at the time yeah that probably would have been illegal all right i would have teeth with joe yeah there you go with ryan but i did i have chief with joe <laughs> yeah he's the bassist, right he's a little so bit now, older like, i just can't like imagine jackson doing it i'm sure he does but i don't know if you ever met jackson i haven't no when we played with him he had left the band oh yes, yes. He's, he's i did just find out though that he is bob mold's nephew from Husker Du. Was that true? I did not know that. Somebody told me that. Peter from Over It told me that. Peter from Over It. Oh man, you are a takeover guy. Yes, I am. Yeah, for sure. I was a huge, huge fan of Over It, but I was also a huge fan of Yellow Card and we were buds with Ben. Because it's the ordinary that makes you extraordinary. Dude, I was just listening to that album. Good old Over It. Yeah. yeah, man. What is over it still doing stuff? They're not, but I have this sneaking suspicion that they might do something soon. They started an Instagram where they're going down memory lane. And I actually had over it, or I had not over it, but I had Pete on the show a few months ago. And he sort of alluded that they might do some stuff. He works in a studio, so he's got the availability. Are they going to work with Ben Harper? I hope so. Probably not. I, mean, that, I don't know. That'd that'd be, probably not, but that'd be great. Yeah. I just talked to Ben too. Not that long ago. Nice. Yeah. Ben yeah. was a huge part of our new record because all the drums, bass, and guitar rhythm tracks were recorded at his studio that he no longer has. But That's cool. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Oh, my gosh. At the Takeover Studios? Did we thank Ben on the liner notes? Oh, I hope so. Just send him a card. Too late to kids, too late to put Ben Harper take over records in there. Oh my yeah, I just pre-ordered the record. I'm excited to get it. 
Yeah. Thank you for doing it, man. Speaking of the new record, I heard you say on an interview, I think it was with Billy. I believe that's his name, Bill. I'm not sure what he goes by. Uh, from the Underachiever podcast. Yeah. I'm assuming he worked for Tooth and Nail at one point. Yeah, he was our A&R guy. He was the guy that oh. made the decision to sign us. Okay. Brandon wasn't that into it. Really? Yeah. The guy Bill convinced them to yeah. sign you. Yeah. Okay. I would imagine you're talking about Brandon, the owner of the label. Yeah, Tooth and Nail. Yeah. Was he into punk rock? At that time, I honestly like I got the impression that he was never really into that punk rock or into punk rock that much. Like he was more likely to listen to like Joy Division. Or- mm-hmm. But he's a little bit older. He grew up in the 80s. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. I was curious because when you were speaking to him, clearly you guys had a relationship with one another, but I didn't know his relationship with Tooth and Nail. I didn't realize he was the A&R or NAR person there. That was a great interview. It was illuminating. That was a good interview. Yeah, he's good at that for sure. Yeah, I think you mentioned that one of the reasons Craig's brother continues to put out music is because of Steven in many ways. Yes. Yes, definitely. We couldn't have done this record. Steven, he's getting head producer credit on this record. He really made it happen. Not just recording most of the instruments, but from start to finish, he basically was the one who was pushing it, making it happen. So yeah, it wouldn't happen if it weren't for Steven. That's great. He's a great dude. I really love Steven. His enthusiasm for music. I think he is a person who really loves music and he knows music, how important it is in his life. And he recognizes, I think, how important it is in others' lives. And a band like Craig's Brother is important. It's always difficult when you're in the thing that people care about because you're so close to it. You just feel differently about your situation. But I would imagine there's countless people who are really jazzed with the idea that Craig's brother is still making music. And I would imagine Steven's one of those people. He probably started out as a fan of the band before he joined the band. Totally. Cool. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's cool that you are humoring him with continuing to put out music too. But it's obviously very important to you as well, right? I'm not just humoring him. I have to say it. For, it was more like, actually, I think the biggest thing was my daughter, Eliza. She's five years old now. But she, like, actually, she was a Craig's Brother fan from the womb. True mm-hmm. story. Her mom, her favorite band is Blink-182. She's pretty into Good Charlotte. Took her a while to warm up to Craig's Brother, but now she's a pretty big Craig's Brother fan. So yeah. when she was pregnant, she was listening to Blink-182, Good Charlotte, Craig's Brother, pretty much in the car the whole time. So we played this festival in, I guess it was May 2017, I want to think. It was Amnesia Rock in Canada. And the headliners were, I think, Megadeth, Good Charlotte, Bad Religion. So Eliza's in the womb. Mommy's pregnant with her. She was born August 2017. And, you know, there's music playing the whole time. Different bands playing the whole time. She didn't necessarily react. But when Good Charlotte played, she started bouncing around inside the tummy. And her little butt was, like, you could see it. And same yeah. with when Craig's brother played. So she knew Craig's brother music. She knew good. She, she knew the music she knew. So, and then she was born and she loves Craig's brother. She calls it daddy songs. She gets in the car. She wants to hear daddy songs. So it's like, wow, I got to make more daddy songs. That was, you have to. Yeah. (laughs) That's adorable. That's really cool. So on some deep level, she knew these songs already and she knew she liked them because she was responding to them and only that. Like the old stuff. But the great thing is, the new stuff, I would be sitting there working on it. I was working in my office at home, my home studio. Nice. And she would like walk by the door and stop and give me these like fangirl looks. And then I hear her occasionally singing new songs, songs that aren't even out yet. She knows them. I hear her like 
she'll just be like singing them while she's playing or something. So that's awesome. Watch out for her. She's going to be a musician, I'm sure. It's cool seeing kids gravitate towards melody and things like that. They develop their pitch. Yeah. It's such a cool thing to see. My partner, she's got two kids and her daughter's eight. And it's been fun watching her develop a sense of melody and pick up pitch really quickly. It's crazy too, because she'll pick up melodies like that. I would imagine your daughter is the same way. You'll sing something a few times and they remember it. Supernatural for kids, not, not supernatural, but very natural for kids to pick up music. I mean, they, that's why songs are such a great way to teach things like the alphabet, mm-hmm. which is, it's weird in Western education. We don't do it enough. That's true. That's a really good point. And you'll hear, I know their teachers sometimes over the years, they'll come up with little songs for ideas and concepts Yeah, and they'll teach that way, which is brilliant when you think about it, because if it's a catchy melody, you're just that much more likely to remember it. It just seeps into your subconscious. Well, it's like when I was studying Hebrew in seminary, I learned the alphabet with the Hebrew alphabet song. Yeah, Yeah, same thing. And then you're a math tutor, right? I mean, not to go all over the place, but do you have any songs, any math tutoring songs? No, I don't. I'm a total hypocrite in that regard. (laughs) I know that in Japan, they have a song that they sing in fifth grade to memorize their time tables, which I think is a great idea. Uh, That is a great idea. Everybody struggles with their time tables. So in Japan, it's just a song. I love that. We need to come up. Yeah. One time I had like an idea for a song. It was super hardcore and it was like, negative B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus 4AC over 2A. <laughs> Is that Bane? <laughs> That's awesome, man. <laughs> I think you should record that. That'd be rad, man. I know, right? I know. Speaking of Japan, did you guys ever make it there to Japan? No. We were supposed to go to Japan in 2010, I think. We actually had a contract with Sony, but then, or no, it must have been 2012 because the tsunami, the earthquake tsunami happened. Mm-hmm. And then after that, the contract disappeared. We never yeah. our contact with Sony in Japan. Oh, were you guys signed to them? Yeah, we signed a contract. Well, it was just a, it was a contract for them to release Insidious Live. Uh-huh. It included the tour. Okay, cool. I don't know what's up with Insidious Lie in Japan now. I think Sony still has the rights to Insidious Lie in Japan. Interesting. I had a similar scenario. My second band, we toured Japan and it was a similar situation where we had a record label that released our record there. And then they asked us if we wanted to come open this tour that they were doing every year. And we went in 2010. And then shortly after that, I remember the earthquake tsunami. That was terrible. But it was shortly after that. It was maybe a year and a half after we had gone. It's a trip, man. If you ever get an opportunity to go, I don't know if you've been there for travel or leisure or anything. It's wild. It's crazy. But in the best way, I would say. Yeah, it's like stepping into a new world, but extremely friendly people, great food, great music. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, cool. So, I mean, we'll certainly run out of time before we run out of topics. I have a lot of questions for you. There's just so many things that I could ask you about. But Homecoming fantastic record that I think a lot of people latched on to. It was a good time, late 90s. I think you guys were expanding the sound of that melodic skate punk sound that was really popular then. But you did touch on issues and lyrical themes that you hadn't heard yet, I think, in that style of music, which I think I latched on to. I think we were talking about it earlier, just the idea of asking questions and talking about real life things that were happening to you. Was that something that you really took special care of when you first started writing lyrics and melodies for Craig's brother? 
did you guys have a big emphasis on the lyrical content? You mentioned too, this is kind of meandering, but the idea of critiquing the church, was that something that you were a little hesitant to do at first? Or is that something you felt compelled to do? It felt pretty natural to do it. Okay. Okay. So there's a few questions you just asked. In terms of lyrics, lyrics have always been pretty important to me. So definitely I was trying, I have kind of a a standard for lyrics. I want them to be good. I want them to be intelligent. I want them to make me think, hopefully. Yeah. But then as far as like critiquing Christianity or questioning Christianity, I don't know. It felt pretty natural. I think part of it was that, well, I was right at the age where you first really start to question things, you know, like most kids up until 18 or 19 are pretty much on board with what their parents have told them. In spite of what they say, you ask your average 16, 17 year old, you can be like, no way. Mm-hmm. But the reality is their views are pretty much their parents. And then around 19, you know, around college age, you really start questioning all of that. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was at a phase in my life where it was natural to question. And I was also experiencing things, some things that were pretty upsetting. Like I had a girlfriend that I met at youth group. I was pretty involved in the church through high school. I mean, I'm, I'm a, not just a math teacher. I'm a Bible teacher. I have a, a master's in theology and I was pretty into the Bible. Like I had read the entire Bible by like my freshman year of high school. Still something I'm really into. I had already had a lifelong passion for the Bible by the time I was in Craigsville. So I kind of naturally gravitated to this kind of leadership role in this youth group that I was at. Mm-hmm. But I had a girlfriend also. And like teenagers do, we were fooling around. And there was the pastor at my church was like, uh, quote unquote, discipling me. And he encouraged me to like, you know, give him all the juicy details. Well, it turns out there was this weird political situation in the church where there was an assistant pastor. And there were some people in the church that wanted the head pastor to leave and the assistant pastor to become the head pastor. But the assistant pastor had a teenage daughter who had got pregnant out of out of wedlock, of course, because she was a teenager, mm. out of wedlock. That sounds like such a weird thing to say. It is a weird thing to say. She had gotten pregnant, and obviously she wasn't married. So this head pastor, so, oh, one of the guys who was trying to get this new pastor in was my girlfriend's dad. He was like one of the elders in the church. And it came up in a meeting, and the head pastor was like, well, if you're going to bring that up, then I have to bring up the fact that in First Timothy... It says that an elder's family should be, you know, under control. Your daughter's pregnant out of wedlock. And while I'm at it, your daughter's messing around with Ted Vaughn. So obviously her dad had no clue that we were doing this stuff, but he gets embarrassed in a church meeting. He finds out that I'm, you know, having sex with his daughter, basically. That was basically, eventually that came back to me. And that was the end of me in that church. I'm like, you, you know, invited me into a situation that you, acted like was safe but it wasn't safe and then you use that information for your own gain and then on top of that right around the same time we're also experiencing this really judgmental christian music scene as cool as it was it was also really judgmental and the same kids who were one day would be like you guys are so great i love you they would hate your guts once they found out that you said a bad word or smoked a cigarette or Mm -hmm. you know smoked pot god forbid or drank alcohol they would turn on you in a heartbeat and almost like it got to the point where like these Christian fans, they would be super stoked on me. And I'm just like, you're not stoked on me. As soon as you get to know me, you're not going to like me. Like, this is not, you know, so there, there was kind of 
I don't know. It just kind of felt natural to critique it or criticize it or kind of react to it. Yeah. And song was the best way, the most effective way to do it. And that informed insult to injury? Yeah. Okay, man, I can't even imagine going through that as a teenager. But a lot of teenagers do. Yeah. Well, in some form or another, right? Because that's a coming of age time. But also just the fact that we know so much more now about even just the development of the brain, the fact that you're continuing to develop your prefrontal cortex into age 25, potentially. The idea that you had to process and come to grips with all of this bureaucracy and all of the messiness associated with the church. I didn't grow up with that. I hear about that a lot now because a lot of my friends did grow up in the church, especially here in the Midwest. My partner, Pamela, she grew up in Iowa and basically the middle of nowhere. And it was the same thing. There was a lot of purity culture, which I was not aware of until maybe the last couple of years of my life and how insidious that can be and dangerous and problematic it can be. Maybe not dangerous, but just problematic. And it can lead to a whole host of issues into adulthood that you can't really process. Or at least like maybe not physically dangerous, but it's dangerous for your psychology. Yeah, exactly. How it informs your ability to have close, intimate relationships with people later in life. And that's just one element of a lot of problematic elements that I think human beings are just naturally wired to hopefully evolve past. And then you find yourself being inundated with cycles of that too. We tend to go backwards and then we go forwards and then we go backwards again. But I have to say though, so I was planning on being like a pastor. That was my career path in high school. I was actually accepted to like a Bible college in Ohio and was ready to go until Craig's brother saved me. (laughs) (laughs) Craig's brother saved you? (laughs) It was like June of 95. I'd been accepted to this college. My plan was to go in fall. And then these guys invited me to join their band. And I was like, screw that. I'm doing the band. Yeah. Uh, But point is, all of that bad experience with the church happened. And then I was like, I don't want to be involved in that. Uh, yeah. Now here I am 20 years later, 25 years later, I'm involved in church leadership. And I honestly feel like having all of the realizing like just how bad it can be has been a really good thing because now I'm, I expect that kind of behavior. I expect people to act like that. I'm on guard. I'm not telling my like intimate secrets to somebody in a position of power, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's so it, in a way it was a good thing, or at least it taught me if you're going to be in church leadership, whatever. And also I'm not manipulating people in the same way my pastor was like. Exactly. You know what to look for. You know what the signs are, essentially. You're not trying to, in a predatory way, essentially try to pry information out of people for your own personal gain. You don't strike me as that type of person, right? right. You experienced it and you were probably completely turned off by that. So you have an allergy to it at this point. You're trying to prevent that from happening. Totally. And I, I would but, rather not be in church leadership than have that happen. Yeah. Well, you're helping evolve, you know, because that's the thing I wanted to ask you. I heard you mention in another interview that you had read the entire Bible in high school. And that's not something that a lot of kids do in their spare time and their free time. So I wanted to ask you what compelled you to read the entire Bible? What was it about the Bible that hooked you? All right. This is a good story. I don't know how much time we have, but I was a pretty crazy reader. Like in fifth and sixth grade, I would like devour books in a day. I mean, I was reading a lot of really cheesy fantasy stuff. That was my like, big thing, but got mm-hmm. to the point where I ran out of that. And I was just reading whatever. I was addicted to reading. And then I got in trouble in sixth grade. And we lived in Florida at the time, which matters because I cussed a girl out 
And I feel like if I had done that in California, it would have been a slap on the wrist. But in Florida, it was a big deal. And I got suspended from school. And my mom's punishment was she wanted me to read through the book of Proverbs. She gave me a yellow highlighter. And I had to highlight every verse that had to do with your mouth getting you in trouble or losing your temper. And okay. if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, it has a lot to say about that. So, but it's also, it's cool poetry. It's really these simple two-line poems, basically. Each proverb is like a two-line poem. And I, I connected with it. I actually enjoyed the punishment. So when I finished Proverbs, I was like, well, I'm going to read the Psalms now. So I went through the Psalms, which is like the largest book in the Bible. And then when I read the Psalms, finished the Psalms, I was like, well, I guess I'll just start at the beginning. Or I don't know if I did the New Testament next, but at some point I just started from the beginning and just went all the way through. So it helps that I was already kind of an avid reader, but somehow it hooked me. Hooked me with the Proverbs. Actually, it was a good move on my mom's part because the Proverbs are and there's a lot of parts of the bible that are actually kind of directed at children mm-hmm. but the proverbs in particular are meant for children or meant for like an adolescent somebody who's old enough to understand or read understand some basic concepts but still doesn't know shit about the world mm-hmm. um, so that kind of hooked me and then i just went through the whole thing and then after that i would be in church or in, you know and somebody would bring up something and i'd be like well it says here in the scripture and pretty soon like i was getting accolades from people in church for my Bible knowledge because most people in church have never opened the Bible in their life. Yeah. Like, I think you're like, you're more likely to find people who've read the Bible among atheists. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Like, yeah. I read that shit. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that's true. I, believe yeah. it. I don't know what I believe, but I believe it. <laughs> Yeah, I see a lot of that today, especially belief without actual any knowledge. That's interesting. Did you feel, was there a sense of, I'm just curious because as I get older, my problems with Christianity, it's not so much the Bible because at a very young part of my developmental age, my grandfather told me that the Bible was a series of metaphors. So that was my frame of reference with the Bible. And, you know, whether or not that's true, that's just how I grew up thinking about it. Oh, these are metaphors for life. I wonder if there was a part of you that felt like this was a clear roadmap for how to live your life in a good way. And you felt like you were in the know by knowing it all. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't really old enough to question like, well, is this really like, I don't know. Definitely at this, at this stage of my life, I questioned the Bible a lot at that age. I didn't really, but it wasn't like, I wouldn't say it was like, wow, now I got the inside. Maybe a little bit, but I think it was more just that something about that literature kind of, I was able to connect with it. Yeah. It hit you at the right time. You absorbed it. Yeah. It connected. It landed. Yeah. And, and there was something, I, I think there's like a mystery to it. And this is kind of still what I find fascinating about it is that, you know, it's thousands of years old. We don't know what people were really thinking when they wrote it. We have some ideas. I mean, I, there's some obvious things that you can conclude, but there's a lot of mystery and it's just, I don't know. It's kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, I didn't realize that, oh, even Bible scholars don't know. At the time, it was just, wow, this is like so deep and rich. And there's so much here that I don't quite get, but I'm just, I don't know, attracted to. Mm-hmm. One, like the mystery of it was attractive. Yeah. You said it's fascinating. And I think in many ways, you're fascinating just as a person, because there's a juxtaposition with you. The fact that you grew up in the church, but you ended up being in a band that in some ways was ostracized by that culture. We were canceled. <laughs> you were the first band to be canceled. I seriously wanted to call our record uncanceled. <laughs> it's not too late, man. They probably haven't printed it yet, right? 
I need no, to write probably. a song called Uncanceled or something, but yeah. You should. Yeah. An additional single. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. That'd be hard to rhyme with. Uncanceled. There's something in there. I'm it's just like sure. all rhyme. And then like the like last part would be like, Uncanceled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you're a bit of an anomaly just yourself. The fact that you're currently talking to me, you're wearing a bad religion shirt, but we're talking about how at a very young age, while you were still able to question things and absorb things and maybe question what you were reading, you were attracted by the Bible itself so much so that you decided to read the entire thing. And you mentioned that a lot of people don't even bother reading the Bible. So you probably have a lot of knowledge that some people who purport to believe something so strongly had made not even read the entire text of it. I find that fascinating. I find that interesting, but maybe that's something that helps guide you towards punk rock as well. Just the nature of questioning the status quo, like we were talking about earlier. I'll tell you this. One thing that most people don't really realize about the Bible, because it's thousands of years old and it's, you know, people who are espousing traditional values often appeal to the Bible. Maybe not all of it, but especially the prophets. And a lot of it was completely countercultural for its time. Like the prophets were killed because they were saying something that everybody hated and they were essentially criticizing their society. So it's a lot more punk than it gets credit for. Yeah. Jesus in particular. Jesus. Yeah. Very punk rock. Punkest dude ever. They, you know, he didn't even do anything violent. They had to kill him just because of things he said. Like Mm -hmm. that's how threatening he was to the status quo. Right. And what he was saying wasn't even all that controversial, especially by today's standards, but people still find it controversial, the idea of helping the most marginalized, right? It's like the concept of Jesus, I can totally get behind, even as somebody who grew up in the secular world. (laughs) Capitalism, right? Yeah. The idea that you would like not be all about yourself. But the church that I grew up in was like, oh no, capitalism is good. Communism is evil. Right. And you hear that now, right? It's actually a lot closer to what Jesus was talking about. Right. Or socialism or socialist programs, or at the very least trying to help the most marginalized and those people that need it. Recognizing that we are, as an adult, I understand the responsibility I have as an adult and those closest to me, but it's always been both. It's not just about me and it's not just about those closest to me. It's also about the whole in which I inhabit the society in which I inhabit, the civilization. We're only as strong as our weakest link. And I think the pandemic really highlighted that. You can't necessarily have your blinders on to all these people that are going through something and need help. And when shit hits the fan and we literally shut the country down and there are people who have just basically been treading water this whole time, that's going to affect everybody. So you can't just become numb to it and assume that, oh, as long as I just hang out in my lane and just focus on myself and maybe my closest family. Some people would just like one, hang out with themselves. One so awesome thing that. about the pandemic was that it showed that we're all interconnected. It's like, if I'm trying not to get sick, having like homeless people on the street coughing on me, if they're not being taken care of, I can't take care of myself. Exactly. It affected all of society. All of society had to be addressed. And in some situations, it actually helped with inequity. I mean, the whole stimulus check and stuff, for mm-hmm. helpful of people. I don't know that homeless people were necessarily getting that. Right, right. Yeah, but it, I think it, it highlighted that fact though, you know, the yeah. fact that we've got a bunch of people who are on the verge of being houseless and they're going to need help during this very tumultuous time in which we're all, like you said, connected to it. You can't escape it. It was interesting. I think that, yeah. Sam's cruise, when the vaccines were still not available to everybody, 
the homeless got them first, which makes sense. If you're trying to prevent the spread, go to the people who can't help but spread it. The ones that aren't necessarily holed up in their home, right? Yeah, they're not able to isolate. They have to be itinerant. They have to move from place to place just to survive. Like, and they have to interact with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting. That's something I go back to a lot as an adult, the idea of personal responsibility, but also responsibility for the whole. And I think that's difficult for people because it's not myopic. It's not one or the other. So I would love to hear, I mean, I would really want to talk. <laughs> I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Ted. I really want to hear about this ostracization of Craig's brother because me and my friends, we didn't really know the whole story, but I always was told that they were taking your records off the Christian bookshelves or something because of a lyric on homecoming. Was this an actual thing or was this something that got blown out of proportion? No, that totally happened. That definitely happened with homecoming. Actually it happened with both our records. I'm not quite sure why it happened with Lost of Sea, but with homecoming, we had the song Going Blind, mm-hmm. which is dealt with kind of lust and masturbation. Mm-hmm. And that was just too much for some mom. Some mom was going to family bookstores so that her teenage you know, the whole value of Christian music for moms was that it was supposedly safe as opposed to secular music. So right when it got released, somebody complained to family bookstores and family bookstores sent back the whole shit, which was a big wrong. Mm-hmm. But they quickly changed their tune and put us back on the shelves. And then with Lost at Sea, something similar happened. But Lost at Sea basically was shelved. I don't know if you know this concept where a label will just not tell the distributors about a record. Mm-hmm. But there was enough demand from the fans that family bookstores requested it. And family bookstores be- ended up being the only place where you could get it for a while. So just weird. That's crazy. Okay, so here's what happened with Lost at Sea. And this was actually what got us canceled. <laughs> Aside from a number of things. But the straw that broke the camel's back was there was a picture of Juice, our drummer at the time. It was from above. I think we we're playing in Canada where there was this like catwalk above the stage. And someone was looking down and he's like looking up from his drum set. He's flipping them off mm-hmm. with a big old smile on his face. Super cute picture. Like not offensive at all, but he's he yeah, was yeah. flipping the bird. Yeah, I know Juice. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the uh, they were super offended. And our, our web guy, who's like, he's not a Christian, but he's the least offensive guy ever. He put it on the website. I didn't make the call, but pretty soon we were getting yelled at. And I'm like, I either, you know, turn on Juice and turn on our website guy. We're both just really good people. Mm-hmm. Or I stand up for them. And I chose to stand up for them. And that was kind of the final moment. Tooth and Nail had enough of us. And once Tooth and Nail decided that we were shelled, the whole Christian scene kind of canceled us, which was fine. Actually, I was kind of happy with that. What Tooth and Nail wasn't very, I feel like, wise about was that we were actually crossing over already. Yeah. We had had, I don't know if you know about the Napster incident. I've heard you talk about Napster. The fact that Lost at Sea came out around that time, right? I would imagine you guys were on Napster and people were discovering your music there. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, what happened was somebody put, who am I on? And But they said under band title, they put, or under the band name, they put No Effects and Lagwag. And under the uh-huh. song title, they put Craig's Brother, Who Am I? So all these people downloaded it thinking that they were getting some like, oh, No Effects and Lagwagon collaborated or something. But instead they got Craig's Brother and a lot of people discovered us that. Like, mm-hmm. A lot of people, like it was as big as songs from the penalty box. 
So suddenly we had all these fans in the secular scene. We were also playing in Canada, these shows that were secular shows. And we didn't feel that we really necessarily needed the Christian scene. Where Also, there was a lot of weird stuff. Like we would play a youth group and they would write us a check and then they would cancel the check because later after we left, they decided we weren't Christian. Well, okay. If we're not Christian enough for you, fine. Don't book us again. But we performed our, we did our job. Pay us. Like, yeah. like that was, I mean. That's incredibly shitty. Lack of integrity. Yeah. We were getting treated. And then we were playing secular shows where we were getting treated way better. Which, to be fair, the secular music scene in the United States is horrible. And they treat bands like crap. So mm-hmm. if youth groups were treating us even worse. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. But Tooth and Nail was like, you're offending our primary audience. Get out of here. You got to go. Yeah. Though they were interested in signing us recently. Again. Again. Yeah. Was it when they released Rotation and Frequency from Slick Shoes? They're capitalizing on some of that nostalgia. Well, yeah. Yeah. So Slick Shoes signed with them and we reached out to them and they talked to us. And it, But it's like, what are you guys really doing? I don't know what they're doing for Slick Shoes, but I don't really know what they're doing at all. It's essentially, it looks like they're putting out the record. They get the merch bundles together and then they push a few advertisements, I would imagine. And I think people are still loosely connected to Tooth and Nail through maybe the podcast labeled and just their social media presence and things like that. But other than that, I think that's all they really do. I'm a big fan of Acceptance and they put out their last record. And I think Acceptance had more of a push and more marketing when they were on Rise a few years before that. They came back together and then they put out the record colliding and they signed a Rise. I think that did good things for their band and their career, but then they put out Wild Slash Free in 2020 on Tooth and & Nail, and it's a great record. It's just unfortunate because I don't think Tooth & Nail really did a whole lot with it. Yeah, we had a, I had a conversation with, I mean, it wasn't Brandon, it was whoever the A&R guy was, but it was kind of, I don't know, <laughs> kind of felt good actually to be in the position of, well, what are you going to do for us? Yeah. Oh, you don't have good answers to that question? All right, I'll talk to you later. I think you guys made the right decision in signing with a label like People of Punk Rock because they seem way more excited They're and they really push their excited. bands. Like Anthony's such a great guy and he's so excited, like he's so pumped about Craig's brother and just down, wants to be, you know, whatever we're doing, he's excited. And they've like signed a lot of really cool acts. Yeah. So it just, I don't know, it felt better. I'm um, looking forward to hearing your record and 10 foot pole. I grew up with Tim Football, all the Epitaph bands. It's cool to see them on there, and they got a new record coming out. I love the Tim Football stuff. It took me a while to warm up to the fact that, what's his name? The Polish. Oh, Scott. Yeah, Scott quit. But I'm like, they're just as rad as ever, if not better. I love Poli, too. But Yeah, dig both those bands, for sure. Yeah. And Dennis is a really nice guy, the singer of Yeah, Tim Dennis Football. is a great guy. He's a great songwriter. Yeah. It makes perfect sense why you would have been slightly jaded back in the 2000, 2001 era, you had a tumultuous ride with the Christian music scene. And it was probably a little jarring because you discovered Good Riddance. Good Riddance got you into punk rock. You guys were interested in fat records. Going back to the beginning when you guys initially thought you wouldn't necessarily go the tooth and nail route, but then you went that route. Was there ever a moment where you're like, damn it, this is why we shouldn't have signed tooth and nail? I mean, I've never thought about it that way, but totally moments like that. Yes, there were a bunch of them. And they were like right around when we were getting canceled by the whole Christian culture. I was like, we should have never gone this route. But I mean, you know, hindsight's 2020. And I can't I don't know that we'd be as big as we are today if we didn't go that route. 
Exactly. You probably were showing millions of people. Yeah, but we like, we reached a lot of people because of Tooth and Nail. I don't know. I guess to to say the positive spin on it is like you know maybe a lot of those kids needed to see us not necessarily conforming. No, absolutely. And the crazy thing is, is how well we've aged versus most of those fans, in part because we were kids. Almost yeah. all of those people from that scene are completely over it and are totally like, wow, that was cringy. Yeah. Where so, but we like, we're like, well, we, you know, we knew it was cringy back then and we were telling you that, but you didn't listen to us. But now you know. And guess yeah. what? We're still making good music. Yeah, absolutely. I think the message is just as clear today and not just themes about questioning Christianity or just questioning the culture surrounding that, but all your songs in general. You guys talk about geopolitics and war and coming back and being neglected by the country that sent you off in the first place. And those lyrical themes resonate maybe more so today than ever. It's interesting because you're probably right. There were probably a lot of people who listened to a song like Insult to Injury and maybe needed to know that the idea of questioning something that you've been told your entire life is completely normal and natural. And actually like how I would say that it's how God interacts with humans. God is not the big conservative in the sky that conservatives would like to think he is or she is, you know, the people who wrote the Bible were killed for upsetting the conservatives at their time. Pretty much all of, at least all of the ones who wrote the new Testament with the exception of John who died, he was in exile. And a lot of the, at least the the prophets in the old Testament were all killed. So revelation is challenging. It should be challenging. Punk is more prophetic than Christian music, yeah, without a doubt. Punk is super prophetic, actually, just by nature. In fact, prophecy isn't so much telling the future as it is critiquing culture. Yeah, The future side comes from it where it's like, if you continue down this path, bad things are going to happen. But like, how many times has bad religion said that? Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had never thought about it that way, but maybe that's why punk rock and the Bible resonated with you. There's a, was a surprising amount of overlap, which I didn't even realize when I first kind of got into punk rock. I should have because, you know, Good Riddance was such a, I don't, I don't know if I picked up on No, I did. I did pick up on Good Riddance and their ethics. Like making a, an ethical claim and critiquing the ethics of culture just seemed so normal to me because that's what I learned. That's the voice the punk rock I grew up in. Absolutely. I think that's good. Yeah, I resonate with that more today than anything. Just the idea of going against culture in some respects. I don't know. People make fun of me for making this parallel, but I'm a personal trainer by trade. I'm 38 years old. So I'm a big proponent of exercising and just trying to stay healthy in a culture that seems to want to make us unhealthy. (laughs) It's counter to that, you know? So it's, oh yeah, exercising to me is punk rock at this stage in my life. So I really want to ask you about Lost at Sea. And I know you probably talked about this record a whole lot. Lost at Sea is an anomaly of a record, which makes sense that you're associated with it. But I love that record. It's one of my favorite records of all time. And sometimes when I listen to it, I don't quite know why it's one of my favorite records of all time. It's a really eclectic, unique record and batch of songs. I would just love to know. I remember. Okay, so I'll give you a quick story. I remember one of the first times Yellow Card was in town. I think this was maybe the second time they came to Kansas City, but I was carting them around town before the show. And I had a burned copy of Lost at Sea because I couldn't find it. Somebody literally had a burned copy and they gave it to me because I liked it so much. And I think I still have it. One of those old burned CDs where it's white on top. It's all white so you can write on it. Totally. 
Yeah. And somebody had written lost at sea on it. And I think it had some dogwood songs on the end of it too, but that was the version I had in my car. And I was listening to lost at sea while I was driving around yellow card and it was Ryan and Ben and Sean all in my car. And I put it on and they all immediately start singing every word. Yeah. I just knew that record mattered to a lot of people. And that's, of course, when I found out Ryan was in the band for six months. I don't think I realized that the first time I met them. And Sean played on Back and Forth. Yeah, yeah. So you guys were tight with them and Ryan was in the band. So what exactly happened there? Who did you guys record with on that one? Who produced the record? Gron was the producer. And he was the engineer who worked with Bob Rock on like Metallica Maybe wow. the Black Album, I think. Yeah, Black Album. And yeah. even the ones after that too, right? Yeah. Bob Ross did those. Yeah. Okay, so that's insane. So you guys were doing very new things. I remember when I first heard that record, there was elements of pop punk and skate punk, that melodic fat record sound. But clearly you guys were pushing the envelope. You guys were trying different sounds, a lot of different guitar pedals and there's flangers and there's Yeah, we went crazy with the effects, yeah. Yeah, but it's so cool because at the time there wasn't really anything like that. And I was a huge, huge Inspection 12 fan as well. My band Game Time, we were constantly, people would reference Inspection 12 anytime they heard us. And Dan was in the band. So can you tell me, because there's been so many iterations of Craig's brother, what was the timeline? Like when did Dan join the band and did he help write a lot of those songs or were you guys collaborating a lot? So yes, Dan helped a ton. So, 98, we toured pretty hard. Adam really wasn't getting along with the rest of the band. And to be fair, at least a few of us, including me, were being dicks to him. So, he quit at the end of that tour. Funny, because I'm like, I, I love Adam. Now. Like, and He's not official yet, but he's probably back in the band. But That's at great. the time, we weren't getting along. At the end of that tour, he quit. Andy decided to quit with him to go start Too Bad Eugene. So we were out guitar players. We auditioned a few people. And then Ryan, he convinced us like he was it. He came all the way out from Florida and he was good. He pulled it. That was Christmas break of 98. Wow. Okay. Which is the lyric of a rock star. Christmas break of 98. Just turn my life around. Yeah. Goes up on my house, on my doorstep. It's raining, pouring rain. He comes, it's like midnight and he shows up with his aunt, Stephanie. That's also the song. Oh, she passed away, right? His aunt? Yeah. Sing for me. That's the song. Yeah. So he shows up. How do I have to tell this part of the story? We smoked a bowl. He plugged in his, what was it? It was a Nintendo 64. And we played The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. First time I'd ever seen that game. Like it was brand new at that time. It was like the coolest, like the best graphics out there. Yeah. We were like 64 bits, dude. This is crazy. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. Was so I still love that game. Anyway, I had to say that. But yeah, so we played with Ryan. Ryan's like, I could get us another guitar player who's super rad. Ryan convinced Dan to come out. Dan came out. We played a lot of shows in 99 with Dan and Ryan. I think that was the year we played the most shows ever. Wow. And then at the end of 99, Ryan crashed our van. And we were like, we got to go home and like recuperate. And he's like, well, I want to keep touring. I quit. And he went and joined Yellow Cup. But Dan uh, stayed at least long enough to record Lost at Sea. So at that point, it was just the four of us. Dan was the only guitar player. And we actually, he pulled it. We played a lot of shows with just him on guitar. And he pulled it. And then we sat down to make the record. 
And I had all these song ideas. I'm like, I don't know to do this. I don't know to do that. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's done. Do it as it is. And then we just did it. But there was a certain amount of kind of rebound, I think, going on. Andy, who started the band, Andy's a great songwriter and a great guitar player. But he has some kind of hardcore ideas about how things should be. He's pretty rigid. And Homecoming was kind of like following the Andy book of rules. And so the reboundness of it was, well, Andy's not here. We can do whatever we want. So that's what we did. And we kind of went a little crazy with it. So that's, yeah, we just, we kind of went nuts with the effects. In the studio, we like rigged up five different amps and mic'd them all up. This is like still two inch tape things. Like we were recording on tape. Mm -hmm. So we had like five different guitar channels with different tones, each one with different tracks. So in mixing, whoa, we could could pull up the flint. Well, I don't know if it was quite like that, but like just every possibility we could do, we just played with. And to a certain extent, we kind of maybe went a little overboard, but yeah, that's, I don't know if I answered the question. Sometimes I wonder if great art, it has an element of pushing the envelope. No, totally. Several different ways. I mean, yeah do something you haven't done before yeah or you know if you're just doing what everybody else has done that's not necessarily art that's my opinion you have to push your own envelope you have to push the envelope in some way oh the other thing that was going on at that time was we were that was right when we were pulling 500 people in santa cruz Mm -hmm. so we were playing these regular shows there was like a local band night started out thursday night was local band night that's what we were playing pretty soon we had us and about three other bands had moved to saturday nights Anytime there wasn't a headliner, we were playing. And these other bands we were playing with were much more rock. They weren't so punk. It wasn't such, it wasn't the double time beat. And we were just kind of influenced by that, I think, a little bit. Oh, okay. The slower tempos and things like that? Yeah. Okay. And doing kind of like, I don't know, a little more like, it wasn't so much emo. There was a little bit of an emo influence too, but, and actually I feel like we were kind of emo anyway from the get-go. Our willingness to talk about our feelings and mm-hmm. feel sorry for ourselves instead of just being like angry and tough. <laughs> yeah, not trying to be punk in the music, but being authentic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could definitely see that. And that's the thing. Sometimes it's difficult to determine or pin down exactly what emo is. Like, is it more the music or is it more the lyrical substance and the lyrical content? But I think you're right. The slower tempos, a song like Head in the Clouds, it had a bit of a Jimmy Eat World clarity effect for me. Listening to the melodies and the words and the fact that you guys were using cleaner guitars, but with effects and things like that and layering lots of parts. And I have to say, that's probably a huge Ryan Key influence. Ryan was, we were aware of emo. We had played with emo bands prior to that. We liked it, but Ryan was like obsessed. Mm -hmm. Whenever, basically the rule was whoever's driving the band chooses or driving the van chooses the music. Whenever Ryan was driving the Saves the Day, it was like Newfound Glory, Jimmy World, all these late 90s emo bands, mm-hmm. get up kids. So I feel like that actually did happen. Whether I wanted it to, or not, I spent hours listening to those bands just because Ryan made me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He grew up with both, right? He was big Fat Records epitaph proponent, but he also grew up with that Midwest emo in him too. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually seeing the Get Up Kids tomorrow. They're playing Kansas City. Yeah, they're playing a beer fest, which is pretty cool. But they Dude, Kansas City is such a great town because you have to go through Kansas City, whether you're going east or west. You pretty much have to go through Kansas City. I imagine you guys get all the best of everything. We definitely did for a while. It's become more of a, what they call a B market, which is interesting. I think it's because of the venues that have come and gone. 
But we definitely get a lot of cool stuff here in the Midwest. We're spoiled in some capacities, but a lot of big tours skip us these days. Yeah. It's it's kind of interesting. Lawrence gets a lot where I'm at right now, but you are right. We're smack dab right in the middle of the country. If you're going to drive on 70, you're going to hit it, you know? So I feel like Missouri in general has kind of a rich music history. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. With 18th and Vine and jazz. And there's a lot of history here for sure, especially with music and culture. You know, I would love it. I don't know if you have any, or if you know, if you're aware of any, but footage of you guys playing as a five piece with Ryan and Dan would be fun. I'd love to see the first Craig's brother. I'm sure there's some stuff online, but I think you posted some pictures not that long ago. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Ryan playing guitar with you guys. Man, there's gotta be some footage. I know there is some footage. The Inspection 12 guys. Footage I've seen is just the four of us. When Ryan was playing, that was the only guitar player. Okay. I saw a video recently of us playing The Refuge in St. Petersburg, Florida. But yeah, one with both of them, I'm sure it exists. That's cool. The song that he sings on, Masonic. Yeah. Yeah. Did he write that song primarily? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, the dance song. Did you guys have more songs? Because I'm pretty sure there's nine songs on Lost at Sea. Did you guys have a lot of demos going into the studio or were those the nine? There's 10. There's 10, yes. But no, that was pretty much it. We didn't have songs that didn't make it on the record. Uh, It was like, oh crap, we got to make a record. Well, here's the songs we got. Well, it's a great record. And it's, like I said, it's one of my favorite records. It's one that I go back to and I just love singing along to it. There's so many dynamics to the record because you do have these fast songs, but some of them really pack a punch. A song like Set Free, I was listening to it on the way home and I'm like, man, this still just, it hits me. There's something about it, it just resonates. Because I've heard other people mention that they just absolutely adore that record. It's a record where when I first heard it, it was so different from Homecoming that it took me a second to understand it. I had to sit with it, you know, as we used to do with records, we used to spend a little bit more time with it, digesting it. And it's one of those records where you have a favorite song and then you listen to it again. Oh no, this song, this is my favorite song. Jam off this record. I feel like my favorite records have always been like that. Like I'm like, oh, what? Actually, I know it's going to be a really, one of my very favorites. If the first time I listen to it, I'm like, what? I need to listen to that again. What does that like you're questioning it. You have you, you know you have to digest it a little bit more. You have to sink your teeth into it. I remember the first time I heard the Pixies. I was like, what? What is this weirdness? I needed to listen to this again pretty soon. Like they they were my favorite band for a good five years. Yeah, Pixies are great. Yeah. But they are kind of an artsy band. You have to sit with it a little bit. Yeah, to you really have to digest like it. Except the fact that like they're gonna do weird shit. I would say with Craig's brother in general, I would hope that people would give us three listens. What I say is if you give us three listens, you'll probably love it. Mm -hmm. You just listen to it once, you'll be like, what was that? Yeah, you'll fall in love with the songs. You let them sink in a little bit. They're not as, yeah. Though I feel like our newest record is much more accessible. Probably our most accessible record yet. Terrible Slave is fantastic. I loved the four songs you guys released before. And I love Terrible Slave. I've been listening to it nonstop. It's cool to see that it's obviously being listened to multiple times. It's already number one on your streaming. And based on that alone, you can tell people are repeating, listening to it. The rest of the record, I'm really excited to hear it. You guys set a pretty lofty goal in 2020, right? You were going to write 20 songs. Yeah. 20 and 2020, you're right. Yeah. And you wrote 18. 18 was, yeah, what we wound up with was where the ball finally landed yeah which is a huge feat i mean 18 songs 
20 songs is hard. 18 songs is also hard. <laughs> yeah. What, what made you guys decide to have Tim mix the 14 songs for the new record? So we were working with Jamie McMahon, who did like, he was, he was the fat records guy after, I don't know, I'm drawing a blank, that dude, the producer who produced like all. Oh, the- Ryan Green. Ryan Green. Yeah. After Ryan Green. And Jamie, we were really happy with him. I really liked working with Jamie, but he just, because of like financial and life situations, wasn't available to, well, okay, actually, he was working in Ben's studio. Ben, like December of 21 or something, Mm -hmm. decided he was done with the studio. He was moving to New Mexico to work with his dad. So he closed the studio. So now Jamie no longer had the studio to work with. Jamie didn't really have the means to mix the record. So we found Tim Van Duren. I don't, I'm not quite sure how we found him. I was familiar with, he did this record, St. Plaster. St. Plaster. Mm-hmm. I love that record. So, yeah, great record. But I didn't necessarily know that. I think Steven found him somehow, but he was super excited to work with us and he gave us a really good deal. Most, mostly about money. He was willing to do it for the cheapest. We didn't realize he basically became like the third band. He added a lot to this record. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And you guys probably trusted him based on his previous work and stuff. Kind of. We didn't expect him to do as much as he did. But once he started doing it, we we're like, keep doing, keep going. So, and actually like if we play in Europe, he'll probably play with us. Especially because he played these parts, like keyboard parts and stuff. We're like, well, who's going to play that? You got to play it. <laughs> You're part of the band now. He also did, the guy's such a good musician. He laid down some incredible bass tracks. He laid down some shredding guitar stuff. Yeah. So Ken Van Duren was awesome. Yeah, he must have had fun. I mean, it sounds like a producer's producer where he's getting in there and you guys are allowing him to add textures and things and different instruments. And I'm sure that was a lot of fun for him, especially if he's a fan of your band, which it sounds like he is. Yeah. Yeah. He was pretty into it. And he did it so quick too. I saw Steven mention in a Facebook thread, he gave a really thoughtful answer about the new record. He mentioned that Tim spent an entire day each song. The budget allowed for him to work solemnly on one song a day. He could just really dive into it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much it was a day each song. But the amount of stuff that he did in a day was mind-blowing. I couldn't. Did he do any backup vocals and stuff? Or Yes, he, he does a ton of backup vocals. And his backup vocals are crazy good. I love the oohs and ahs and all the backup vocals in Terrible Slave. It's yeah. so good. A lot of that is, is him. Yeah. Okay, cool. I wondered about that just because I didn't know if it was you singing them or if it was Steven singing some of them. I'm sure he does sing on the record and sing some of the backup vocals and things. But I noticed that right away when I heard Terrible Slave. I thought, oh, this is really cool. It's got a, a lot of the melodic sensibilities that you love from Craig's brother. I mean, if you're familiar with Stephen's voice, Tim has this like kind of more angelic choir boy voice, which is saying something because Stephen's voice is pretty angelic choir boy himself. Mm-hmm. So you can hear the difference. Stephen actually didn't do that much backups on the record, but he played almost every other instrument. So we'll give him a we'll give him a pass on that. Cool, awesome, very cool. Can't wait to hear the rest of it. The song. The title, even the lyrics, indicative of a lot of the things that we've been talking about in this episode, not being able to conform all that easily. Is that, that was the idea behind the song? Yeah, well, it's kind of, it's written to like a boss of a job that this finger is quitting. 
and that I'm quitting and whatever. It's kind of like I got bigger plans than this than being your pawn. Mm-hmm. I was kind of inspired by like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Reddit anti-work thread. I'm not, but this sounds like something I need to read. It kind of really blew up in the pandemic where um, it's it's called anti-work. It's just people basically like, a lot of it is just like reposts of like the email they sent to their boss when they quit or the bullshit that their work is expecting them to do and why they're going to quit. It's mostly basically people just quitting their job. A lot of people in the pandemic realized, I mean, the labor market like became so in favor of the worker that they like didn't need to put up with the crap that bosses, you know, shove out. So the whole thread is basically just about people quitting the job. So that's kind of, the song was kind of inspired by that. And also just, I've, I've been through that so many times. There's been so many times where I quit my job, especially mm-hmm. like being in a band where it's like, well, we're going on tour. So sorry, I'm not going to deliver pizzas for you anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry that's so upsetting to you, but what <laughs> you really expect. <laughs> yeah. A practical, I think, realistic human being. Oh, yeah, 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 that makes perfect sense. Well, this job will be here when you come back. Yeah. We'll welcome you back, you know. Most managers are like, what? How could you do this to me? But at the same <laughs> time, they're like, you were 30 seconds late. We're going to have to write you up. Like, well, because you're a dick and I don't like you. And you've never been cool to me, so why should I be cool to you? But right. for a long time, that was expected, that employers should kiss the ass of an asshole. Yeah, yeah. Ass of an asshole. <laughs> I'm sure you could go on a tangent with me. But the thing that's always perplexed me, especially as I get older, is the idea that workers are supposed to have some sort of unending loyalty to their employer. Okay, realistically, the person should be loyal to the point where they want to keep their job. They want to keep producing something of value so that they get a paycheck so that they can take care of their people. But, you know, when Jack Welch created the idea of layoffs in the late eighties, which for the longest time, I just assumed that layoffs were a thing that happened 500 years ago. Didn't realize it the last 30 years that they've been a thing. Why would anybody be loyal to any employer ever for any reason other than to get paid? Right. It makes zero sense. There should be no loyalty because the companies have no loyalty to their employees, especially if it's a big corporation where at the end of the year, in order to make the shareholders happy, they got to say, well, we didn't quite meet the expectations of the shareholders and we didn't go up 15%. We only went up 8%. So we're going to get rid of the bottom 7% of our employee base. Where's the loyalty there? It doesn't make any sense. For-profit situation where you're just an expense. That if need be, they would happily cut. Yeah. Like in, in my church situation, okay, I accept less pay than I feel I deserve because I am loyal to them. I'm a part of the community. These are people that I love. It's not just a paycheck. It's not just an employer. And vice versa, they love me and will help me out in ways, you know, if something were to happen, they would find that, you know, take me into their home or something. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen, if you're, you know, corporate America. No, nobody's going to take you into their house and they'll cut you in a second. If it comes down to it. So why right. should, yeah, why should I feel? And really, I think that's the point of the song is that it harkens back to slavery. They want a slave. They don't want an employee. They want a slave, but you're a wage, slave. but an employee like, Oh, you can't like survive on the wages we're paying you. Well, that's your problem. Right. Yeah. And if you are late, it might be arbitrary or some sort of, you know, thing where you're getting in trouble with your, superior or you're not playing politics. I think back to the Robert Greene book, The 48 Laws of Power, 
I don't know if you've read that book, but one of the commandments in the book is always make sure your boss knows that it's their idea, even if it was yours, because <laughs> it's like a power play. Yeah, I recognize that probably is true, but I just don't want to exist in that ecosphere. That's probably why I work for myself. I'm an independent contractor because I may not necessarily make it all that great of an employee, which I think, you know, is why I like the song. Yeah, totally. The lyrics of the song essentially say that. I don't know if I'm super employable. Yeah. Like, yeah, I've seen you make plenty of mistakes. <laughs> I'm not going to do things the way you want me to. I'm not going to like, yeah, exactly. But I love it. The moral of the story is I love the song and I can't wait to hear the rest of the record. And the song, it's got all the elements that I love about Craig's brother in it. It harkens back to the punk rock roots. There's distorted guitars. There's a great melodic guitar solo. The lyrics are really great and the melodies are really great. That guitar great. solo is Tim Van Duren too. Is it really? Okay, cool. I love the guitar solo. He did a killer job. He did. I love it too. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I'm sure you're excited as well to have a new record, a whole new batch of songs. Is that a little weird having a full length out? Because the last full length was The Insidious Light. We didn't even talk about that, but... I know. We didn't talk about The Insidious Light. It's not weird. It's cool. It's exciting. It's yeah. kind of fun to be in that position again. And I don't know why we waited so long or in general why we haven't... I don't know. It was weird because... It was such a random idea. We're like, let's make a record, me and Steven. Mm -hmm. But actually, I feel like part of the reason it happened is because the band had fizzled out. Pretty much everybody had moved on with their lives. Nobody was really all that committed. And it was just kind of like me and Steven were the only ones who were really talking about it. And we were like, well, if it's just us, then we don't have to wait for anybody else to be on board with the idea. Let's just do it. And so we did. I love that. Yeah, which I think is, I don't know. I'm not promising that we're going to make any records in the future, but I've definitely realized that it's doable. I don't need to wait for my bandmates to be on board. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, I hate to say it, but it was way better just working with Steven and Tim. We all have our own studio. We're all ready to go. Steven and Tim are super talented. I can speak for myself. but Yeah. And didn't Adam help write a song? Did he write one tune on the new record? Or helped song, right? Yes, it's it's actually a song that's already out. It's a Too Bad Eugene song, too. It's both Too Bad Eugene and Craig's brother did it. The song Distant. Oh, okay, cool. That's awesome, yeah. man. I yeah. love that song. Our version is just a little more double time. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's they're so similar. It's kind of like... I completely understand what you mean by sometimes the logistics of getting five people in a room or four people in a room can be really tricky, especially in adulthood where we're so busy and we've got yeah, kids. Right and, yeah. And for certain seasons, people may not necessarily have the capacity or the time to write a record, but maybe they can come on board and help you guys play a hometown show or a festival date or something. So that makes complete sense. With game time, we've been recording songs. It's largely the two of us. The drummer's still involved, but he lives far away. So he's not always playing all the drums on the songs, but he's still very much so a part of our thing. And we're still friends and we're still buds. And But it is freeing because it's not so serious. I don't know if that resonates with you, the idea of creating art for the sake of creating art. Because when you're in a band and you're on a label and you're in the middle of a cycle and you're touring and it feels more serious in many ways, I would imagine this is probably like a life-giving project writing songs with Steven. Yeah, no, totally. In fact, that has been our mantra through the whole record is let's not take this too seriously. And the weird thing is, I feel like what we came out with is more like probably the most accessible, sellable music that we've ever made. But the whole time, even from the get-go, like we sat down, I think pre-production was about two hours at my church, just 
Steven recording on his phone and an acoustic guitar. And it's just like going through the ideas. And we basically got all, all the ideas down in that two hours and then just went forward with the plan. And the whole thing was, let's not take this too seriously. Let's not get caught up and worrying about details. Let's just do it, make creative decisions, move on. And I'm like, man, I should have done this all along. In fact, it almost feels more professional. Like a professional, I, in fact, I heard this quote from uh, it was William Shatton, who was like, you know, there's a ton of actors out there in the world who could do it better than me. They could do a way better job than me. But the question is, can they do it Friday night at five? A professional is able to do it and not really sweat about it, not lose any sleep about it and just get it done. So I feel like in that sense, we actually were more professional, even though we weren't trying to. We were trying to just, you know, work with what we have. Yeah. But that attitude, don't take it too seriously, just get it done, actually turned out to be more professional and worked out better for us anyway. And you were maybe more prolific because you had a crop of 18 songs to work with and all these different ideas, right? Right. You were being too granular with them, too precious with them. Totally. Totally. And it's weird. And also, I don't know, we kind of followed rules that we've never followed in the past. Let's try to keep a song three minutes. But I feel like those rules, that rule in particular actually matters more today than it did in the past. I noticed this. Mm -hmm. I was listening through a punk playlist from, it was the POPR, People of Punk Rock playlist. And there was a song that was like four minutes long. And once it got in, once it got past three minutes, I was doing housework or whatever, not paying total attention, but I'm like, is this song done yet? (laughs) Yeah. My own attention span. Whereas in the past, I used to love long songs. Yeah. Five, 10 minute songs or something. It's funny how that works, right? As I get older, I find myself wanting to just work within the constraints of a three minute song. Well, our culture has very short attention span, even shorter than it did 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's just the same with preaching. I don't preach. 20 minutes is the longest I'll ever go. 10 minutes is about right. Mm-hmm. What people can but a hundred years ago, people could sit for, you know, a two hour sermon, mm-hmm. but they didn't have anything else to do. And they weren't constantly like, it wasn't just constant. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. So like I said, we're going to run out of time before we run out of topics, but I wanted to ask you one more thing. You mentioned earlier that you've got a master's in theology. Yeah. You've dedicated a good portion of your life to this, which is commendable. And you've also studied, I heard you say in one of the interviews that you studied philosophy as well. Were there any parallels that you saw with some of the philosophical studies along with reading the Bible in full? Or was there any types of philosophy that really resonated with you that really grabbed you? Well, I would say theology is a subset of philosophy. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Philosophy that deals with God. But yeah, totally. No, philosophy was a huge setup for theology. And a lot of my favorite theologians are also really great philosophers like Augustine. If you ever read the Confessions of Augustine, he's just, it's his like own musings and he gets into some really deep philosophical stuff. Like he discusses philosophy of time and all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's still, or like the way he addresses the problem of evil. The problem of evil is huge for Christianity. How could God be good if evil exists? And that's a basic, like I studied that in philosophy before I studied in theology. So there's a, yeah, there's a huge overlap. And philosophy definitely prepared me for theology. I think my favorite philosopher and theologian right now is Soren Kierkegaard, who's mostly recognized as a philosopher, but he's also a theologian. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to get too far into Soren Kierkegaard. I think we'd need another hour. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll do that for round two or something. Yes. Yeah. I feel like the last five to 10 years, I've become more acquainted with things like Stoic philosophy. That's become really popular. I'm a big fan of Ryan Holiday's work and 
I think I was originally turned on a Stoke philosophy from Tim Ferriss. I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan as well. I'm not familiar with these philosophers, but I'm out of the loop. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Stoic philosophy in a nutshell. It's... I know about Stoic philosophy, but yeah, I know about the ancient Greeks. Okay. Yeah. The ones I'm referring to are the Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. Yeah. There is more for sure, but those are probably the two most famous ones. I've read Meditations a few times. And... Yeah, I've read Meditations too. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, I felt like when I started reading that stuff, I felt a little bit in the know. Oh, this is a good roadmap for how I should live my life in many ways. Maybe not everything, but right. It resonated with I, me the I, idea of and this whole idea that like, well, you're not really in control. So are you gonna cry about it or are you gonna make the best out of it? Exactly. But so John one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Or in the beginning it was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word logos is the word for word. That was the basically I'm pretty sure that John is intentionally referencing Stoic philosophy because the, the Stoics would talk about basically the way the logos was like kind of the uncontrollable force that was making things happen that you can't really, you know, you can't do anything about other than accept. So then John comes along and says, in the beginning was the Logos. Logos is Greek for word. And that's the word that he's using there. I'm convinced in that context, a Greek reader would have thought, oh, Stoic philosophy. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that in terms of Logos and the Greek meaning. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's cool because I used to really have an allergy to anything affiliated with the Bible or organized religion, but in hearing those things and learning those things, I see the parallels and it makes me a little bit more open, I think, to, you know, just the general concepts of the Bible. And it's hard because you got these really obnoxious people who really like to cite the Bible, but if you can scrape all that away, try to read it. What was the person who was actually writing this, trying to say, and how did the original audience understand it? It's actually very, usually very different. Most people today aren't even asking those questions. They're just, you know, well, it's the word. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, mm-hmm. what did God actually say? And what was he trying to say? And what, what do you believe? And, you know, like, can you apply some basic language <laughs> rules to what you believe? And is it, does it even work? And most of the time it doesn't. Like, for example, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Most Christians are like trying to prove that we'll see Jesus is God. But I don't think that's necessarily the point. I mean, that might be part of the point that the original author was making. But there's something there's something much deeper. If you realize that Stoic philosophy was a popular belief at the time and that most of the people who read that were familiar with Stoic philosophy. And so the author is playing into that. Yeah. But, you know, these people don't know anything about Stoic philosophy. They're just, all they know about is fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And potentially using their version of what they hope it to mean to help them justify whatever it is they believe. The cognitive bias, confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, totally. Yeah. Totally. Or what we say in biblical scholarship is it's anachronistic. You're reading your own culture into a, you know, reading the culture of 21st century America into a book that had no knowledge of 21st century America. Right. The interpretation was a little different. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, cool, man, dude, we're coming up on two and a half hours here. I, I want to respect your time. Thank you so much, man. This is a really wonderful conversation. I, I've been a fan of your band since 1999. I think that's when I first, maybe even 98, when I first heard you guys on songs for the penalty box and I've been listening ever since. So this is a trip, man. This is really cool. Awesome, Kyle. Yeah, thanks. I, I yeah. clean the house here before my wife gets home. <laughs> I feel you, man. It's a good time to do it. I think Friday afternoons are actually a great time. Get a few things settled in the house so you're not doing little bits here and there throughout the weekend. Yeah, or just yeah. Yeah, messy house. <laughs> I want to have fun, but there's these chores. I <laughs> exactly, man. Well, cool, dude. This has been illuminating. So thank you for taking the time. And maybe we can do this again sometime. I'm really excited to hear the new record. And yeah, dude, one of these days, I'm going to figure out where you guys are playing live. I'm going to be there because I would love to see Steven again. It's been too long. I think the last time I saw Steven was 2004. With Hey Mike or what? Yeah, it was with Hey Mike. Yeah. Game Time played a couple shows with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. 2004, man. Oh, okay. Never mind. We're That's when the- Epidemic came out, right? Yeah. And that was when we toured with Yellow Card. Hey Mike toured with Yellow Card. That was a big year. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. You guys did go out on the road with Yellow Card. Yeah, right? those are the biggest shows we ever played. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were riding the wave of Ocean Avenue and everything too, but that would have been cool to see you guys play with them. You know what? Most of those fans, they were like teenage girls who had no clue about punk rock and really didn't care. And like, yeah. it was, you know, I don't know. It's it kind of annoying. Yeah. I feel yeah. like we and made more of an impact on smaller audiences. Yeah, I could see that. You guys were probably playing in front of a lot of people who had just heard Ocean Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. They had no clue about punk rock. They were just like, Ryan King. <laughs> I was going to go see Britney Spears, but I'm here because I come to board Britney Spears. <laughs> yep. And I saw that video on TRL. I kind of liked it. Yeah, My cool. friends brought me. Yeah. Very cool. Well, dude, have a great rest of your night. Have a great weekend. I hope things are going well in California. I hope you guys don't experience any fire or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Hoping to make it till the next rain. Yeah. Have you guys been getting rain? No. Okay. It doesn't typically rain until November. Okay. So the Usually closer it's November, the scarier the fire season gets. Uh, Some years it's gone all the way to December. That's when it's really scary. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully that doesn't happen. I hope you guys... Don't experience anything like that. Thanks, Kyle. I hope you don't even. I'm sure there's disasters waiting for Kansas City, too. We've got tornadoes, but yeah, I think we're coming out of tornado season. So, but yeah, man. No, I appreciate the time. I grew up with a lot of people who grew up in the church, and I think they'll find this conversation illuminating, just like I did. So, yeah. Cool. All right, man. Yeah, I look forward to the record. Right on. I hope you love it as much as you like Terrible Slave. I'm sure I will. Yeah, I'm going to listen to it more than three times for sure. Yeah, I'm going to spend some time with it in my car. All right, Kyle. It's been great. Awesome, man. I'll yeah. talk to you I can't wait to hear it. Okay, cool, man. Yeah, thanks for doing it. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your night, okay? You too. All right, see you, buddy.
Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be incredible. I'd really appreciate it. Wherever you listen to podcasts, another thing you could do would be to share this podcast with a friend, anyone who enjoys this type of music or personal development in general. All right, I hope you're having a wonderful day. Hopefully you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. Take care and I'll talk to you later. So close your eyes and get your eyes out your mind.